Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan. How are you? Oh, good. Been a couple minutes since we talked. Yeah, it has. How's everything going? Oh, whoosh. Things are good. 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 You, you know, it's a, um, <clears throat> it's a, it's a kind of slightly cold and cloudy Seattle summer day. Yeah. Which is uh, a kind of thing we haven't seen in a few years. Oh. You know, last year I think the it, it stopped raining in in April or May, and it didn't rain again until October, and it felt like. Ah maybe the end times were coming, you know, and it had been like that the year before and the year before that. And, uh, it used to not be that way. It used to be, you know, you'd have a few sunny days and then you'd have a rainy day and, you know, summers here were, were wonderful. And yeah. Last few years, they've just been these scorching hot, you know, when I ran for city council, it was so hot that summer. I mean, it was just, it was just awful just getting up in the morning. You know, mm-hmm. I was already, it was already hot and uncomfortable, but today it's this kind of cold, rainy day, and it it just feels amazing. Yeah, it's sounds the best, nice. Yeah, best kind of day in the summer. You break it up a little bit. Tomorrow it'll probably be sunny, but today it's just like it's a stay inside day. So I'm feeling good. Feeling good about that. How's it going down in uh, in Austin? Everything just sort of smells like smoke and gasoline. No, nothing smells like smoke or gasoline, but it is a hundred, like a hundred degrees here the last couple of days. Today's cooler because we got some rain last night, staying a little cooler. Oh, that's, nice. that's nice. No smoke though. Well, I mean, I'm just talking about the smoke from all the barbecues. Oh, sure. Burning yeah. all that meat. Well, it is, you know, when Wednesday is when, of course we record on Thursdays, but on Wednesday is when all the barbecue restaurants or trucks uh, open. They don't, what, they're, they're, they're not open any other day of the week. They're open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Really? They take, uh, all of them take Monday, Tuesday off. Yeah. Pretty much across the board. All of them do. Oh, what an yeah. interesting little local, uh, lo- local tradition. Yeah. I mean, you can go to places that are like the, the chains, like a Rudy's or something like that. They're open, of course, probably seven sure. days a week. Sure, but all of all be. of the really good places, like the and m- most of the best barbecue, comes out of you know they usually the, the. Do you have a food truck culture in Seattle? I know you're familiar with what that is. Do you have that in Seattle, or is that not really popular there? Well, let me tell you. First of all, I'd like to just just go back a second. Did you say barbecue? Barbecue. Okay, you didn't put a second R in. Bar I must barbecue? No, I don't. I mean, I'm, I may have might have come out that way because I was just eating a uh, dry a piece of dried mango, which mm. is my uh, snack of my mid afternoon snack of choice for the last few days. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, a little piece can get kind of hung up in there. Yeah, no, so no. It, I just wanted to make sure that that wasn't also a weird not, Philadelphia not, via Texas. Oh, so so somebody just pointed out to me yesterday that the way I say a sorcerer is wrong. It's supposed to be so- sorcerer or something. Sa- I say sorcerer. Sorcerer. I, I love that, Dan. Yeah. See, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, as far as food truck culture goes, let me just... I'll I'll give you the I short would guess version. I've never been to Seattle because you never invited me, but I would guess that you guys have an amazing food truck culture there, just like they do here and in Portland and LA and other places. Well, now 
to clarify, I have invited you many times. Come to Seattle anytime. You and Hattie come up. We'll do a show. We'll have a good time. I'll make take it, you make on the tour. Make a note. First, first invitation from John to no, Dan. No, Visit Seattle July 11th, Thursday, July 11th, 2019 at 1.06 p.m. Central Time. Uh, we can Noted. get Hattie on the we can get Hattie on the phone right now. At, she can chime in over your shoulder mm. and confirm that I have invited you guys well, she's, many uh, times before. She's yeah. She doesn't seem to agree. She doesn't seem mm-hmm. to think that's the case at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm all speaking right. on her behalf. Yeah, I see that you are. She's probably emphatically <laughs> thumbs upping from the other room. Uh, the food truck thing. Uh, Seattle is is a classic sort of nanny state culture. We, um, we had pretty restrictive blue laws for most of the 20th century or most of the second half of the 20th century. You couldn't sell alcohol on Sundays. You couldn't sell booze in supermarkets uh-huh. or convenience stores. You couldn't sell hard liquor in a, in a bar unless that bar also served meals. Uh, there were taverns which could sell wine and beer, but not hard alcohol. Also, if you if you sold hard alcohol, you could not look into the bar from the street. There had to be some kind of some kind of barricade between the sidewalk and the interior of the bar. Um, a lot of fire department rules and a lot of health department rules. It was a very top down kind of overmanaged city. You couldn't stand out in front of a bar with a beer in your hand. You couldn't, I mean, all ages shows were made very difficult here because you couldn't have minors and adults sharing the same space. And part of that extended, I mean, a lot of that kind of um, culture just sort of, it, it suppressed a, um, it suppressed a restaurant and bar scene. I see. Because it was just a pain in the ass. And so there were, I mean, when I first moved to Seattle in the early 90s, there was a countable number of taverns and bars. Um, Every neighborhood had its own tavern. And those taverns were like the, you know, the sort of uh, nucleus of a neighborhood culture. Uh And I mean, I mean, small neighborhoods you know, you'd see these little taverns on the corner type of place. Um, But the bars that sold hard liquor, I mean, those were that, that weren't also like nice restaurants. You know, that was a, that was a countable number and the, and the taverns were too. Um, And then to Seattle's everlasting shame and embarrassment, <laughs> Portland, Oregon, um, devised this, this sort of very, very, um, free culture of food trucks right. where, where, uh, immigrants and startup, you know, like uh, young people were all given the opportunity to start a restaurant, start a business. And all they had to do was, you know, get a, I mean, you had to get a nice truck and it had to be, it had to meet health code standards, but the city itself kind of, I don't know if it's deregulated or at least like made it, made the regulations so that it was possible for you to open a small restaurant in the form of a truck. 
and the culture exploded right. down there. All yeah. of a sudden, fascinating food avail- available kind of everywhere. And and food trucks could stay open late if the person who was running it wanted to do that. And so all of a sudden you had you could, you know, as the bars emptied out at night, there were these little oases of delicious food kind of waiting there for you. And in Portland, if you wanted to take your beer out on the sidewalk, it wasn't like they were going to shut the bar down. You know, right, I don't know exactly right. what the rules were, but you could stand out in front of a bar with a cigarette and a beer in your hand and it wouldn't, it wasn't like the end of the world. And here in Seattle, I mean, any deviation from the, from the like very restrictive rules, you know, they threatened to shut your bar down and they would. Yeah. Still, still like that. Well, so Seattle watched as Portland and, and, and I think Seattle for most of Seattle's history, it regarded Portland in the same way that it thought of Everett and, uh, Olympia, you know, Portland was just kind of a dirty little insignificant town somewhere up and down the coast. So same as, same as today. Well, no, I mean, the thing is, uh, Portland was that there was Portland in 19 in 2000 even, but it certainly in 1990, there was, he did, there was no reason to go to Portland. There was absolutely nothing there. It was sleazy rundown. Um, there, it, it seemed like the sun never shined on Portland. <laughs> it was just kind of moss covered and it was also sketchy, uh-huh. right? Seattle was sketchy in the eighties, but Portland was a different kind of sketchy. It was a kind of, um, it was like, uh, how do you say it's like a, almost a kind of child prostitute degree of sketchy, a lot of strip clubs, a lot of drugs. It was just a, it was a downer. And that was true of course of Everett and frankly, Olympia and Tacoma, all these places were bummers. It was part of why the culture that thrived here was also such a bummer, you know, like yeah. Seattle culture in the nineties, as it got commercialized and, um, widely disseminated, it kind of got cleaned up, but to be here in the early nineties, late eighties, it was a bummer, like everything about it. Anyway. So when Portland, you know, went on this sort of this great run they've had for the last 10 years, this, this sort of Portland ascendant thing where they became a Mecca and also an exporter of culture. Mm -hmm. Seattle was like, at first, I think Seattle's reaction was say what? (laughs) And you know, Portland has always had an inferiority complex directed at Seattle. And when I say that I get a lot of anger, super angry, thou dost protest too much style emails and tweets from people who say Portland doesn't have an insecurity complex about Seattle. (laughs) You know, like people get really, really mad at the suggestion, just further reinforcing that they have always, and still do. They absolutely do. They have, they have, I would say probably one for Seattle. And I think they have one for a little bit for Austin too, because the last time I was in Portland, I started seeing keep Portland weird signs up. Yeah, they've Which, been up for a long time, but yeah. that's an Austin trip. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I was in, this was a long time ago since I was in, in Portland and I doubt they were new then, but it, it, it struck me as uh, offensive a little bit. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> well, 
Well, and and a lot and a lot a lot of what Portland exports culturally is sort of a general Northwest culture. It's not right. it's not specific to them. And a lot of a lot of what Portland culture is now is the result of people that have come from other places sure. and adopted what they think is Portland culture, which oh, is what right. happened in Seattle too. I think it happened here. Yeah, I mean, right. By by five years after your city explodes, right. you're just dealing with a bunch of people walking around basically cosplaying uh, what, <laughs> right, they what thought their, your city their was. idea of what the city was 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> There's so many people in Seattle right now that are mad about development that like you moved here in the last four years. Uh-huh. It's like, what are you mad about development for? <laughs> uh, but the food truck thing in particular really rankled Seattleites because it was so obvious, so cool, uh-huh. so 100% appropriate. And really it was what Seattle, it, 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 it was, um, it was communicating a thing that was true about Seattle that Seattle had never figured out how to do. I mean, in, in, in 1996, it was still cheap to live here. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to start a theater, you got six of your friends together. You went and found some old hole in the wall. You struck some deal with the landlord. You put some, you put black paint on everything, <laughs> built, built, built a <laughs> one foot tall stage out of plywood and you had a theater Yeah, and you started writing plays, you know, like Seattle was so much, um, that kind of place. And it was a big part of our identity. It was why it was so creative here. It was why it was so great to live here. But we never figured it out about food because of all these restrictions. And Mm -hmm. nobody ever fought the man on it. We were fighting the man on so many things. Yeah, you had enough to worry about, it seems like. Yeah, we're just trying to, you know, just trying to keep the... This was during an era when there was a, a city ordinance passed that you weren't allowed to sit on the sidewalk. They were trying to <laughs> really? they were trying to deal with panhandlers. Okay. And their solution was no sitting on the sidewalk. And and so it became a thing where it was like you'd go out and sit on the sidewalk just as a form of public protest, which felt which was shameful and and ridiculous. Like uh, sitting on the sidewalk as a form of public pro- I mean we were prohibited from putting posters on telephone poles because the city determined at the city prosecutor at the time or something uh it was the excuse was what it was was they thought it was unsightly because it was how we communicated i mean uh uh phone poles all over the city were just papered to 15 feet up the pole papered all around six inches deep with flyers for rock shows for you know, lost dog, but garage sales. I mean, it was, it was flyer culture was, was how we got the word out about things. I remember the first time my band was, a uh, had a show that was worthy of flyers being put up. And, um, and it was a long time before my band was big enough that there were enough flyers put up that you, would notice them. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd walk through town and, and when a big show was happening, when the Melvins were playing or something, there were flyers everywhere. And it was, it, it added to the excitement. It was like, it was coming up. The city didn't like it. They thought it was, they thought it was ugly. It made it, you know, they were, they were just trying to, they were trying to build the Seattle that we have today, this sort of gleaming city of the future. 
And at the time they thought things like flyers held us back. And the excuse was that the six inches deep of flyers made it unsafe for telephone company operators (laughs) to climb the poles with the, you know, they use those boots with the giant spikes in them. Yeah. And so, you know, the one time every six months that, that a lineman has to go up a pole, well, these flyers were, were in the way. And so all of a sudden all the flyers got ripped down and it was right in the, right in the dead center of my band's, um, my like early band arc arcs or Mm -hmm. early bands arc where this was the time when my band was big enough that there would be flyers all over for it. And all of a sudden the flyers were gone and the flyer culture was gone. Now what are you supposed to do? And there were, there were lots of cafes and stuff that said you can hang your flyers. What they, they would make a wall available for people to put flyers. Um, but you know, then you're competing for this tiny little space. It was just, it was, and you know, flyers were a, a, were an entire art form, um, making flyers. There were flyer, there were artists that, that did show posters, a lot of artists that did show posters. I, I made, I made my first flyer and I was thrilled. And a lot of my friends like critiqued it. They were like, I'm not sure that that's the, that's the font I would have used or what, you know, like it was a, <laughs> it was part of our, it was part of the culture here. Right. But somehow the restaurant thing, it was just too complicated. It was too, uh, the, the sort of chef thing hadn't really happened yet. Um, Northwest cuisine was a thing that was still being still evolving. One of the people that, one of the, the, the people that really developed and promulgated the whole farm to table thing was a guy up here in Seattle by the name of Kurt Timmermeister who had a restaurant called the that Cafe Set like made, made up name. I know Kurt Timmermeister does seem like a, a like if funny I was name making that. up a completely arbitrary name, that would be it. Yeah, but the first name would also it would be like uh uh Kurt, Curtis Timmermeister at least. You know, it would have I, there'd be one extra beat in it. Mm-hmm. But Kurt Timmermeister is real and he had this this little cafe that was, you know, it was like I think it was supposed to be vaguely French, but of course it served huevos rancheros, you know, (laughs) but it was a place that, uh, it was like my, it was my hangout. My original hangout in Seattle was a cafe called the, uh, Espresso Roma and the Roma just had coffee and maybe cookies. I mean, there wasn't, um, I, I, after I started dating the the manager of the place, she would keep a bottle of total c- cereal behind the bar so that when I came in, because <laughs> I would I would come in and she would say, have you eaten anything total. today? And I would say, no. And she said, we'll have a bowl of total. And she would, she would give me a bowl of total because it had all the vitamins and the, and the, you know, so she kept it there because she knew that I wasn't eating on a regular basis. And she was like trying to, it was her kind of motherly way of keeping me alive. But other than the box of total, I don't remember the food that you could get at the Roma. I don't think it was sophisticated enough that there was, that they had chocolate croissants or anything. You know, I think it was like, it was just, it was just a cafe, Mm -hmm. but, but for the first five years I lived in Seattle, that was my, I was there every day. And then as I got a little older and I felt like 
and I was sober at that point. I needed a cafe where I could hang out and there was food. And so I went up the street on the same block, uh, three quarters of the way up the block, this cafe Satiem was there. And so I would go in the morning, I would get a booth and throughout the course of the morning, my friends would come in, you know, the table would fill up, we'd all eat. And then a couple of people would have to go to work and two more people would come in and, and sit down. Uh, and that way I would, I would while away the day until afternoon when I had to go to work or, you know, something would happen that we would have to, you know, that we'd move, not have to, but that we would move to a separate uh, second location. It was great times. And Kurt Timmermeister ended up not wanting to run a restaurant anymore. And he moved out to Vashon Island, bought a little farm and started having these dinners out there on Vashon where everything at the dinner was grown on his property, except for the coffee, the sugar, the wheat, and the salt and the wine, (laughs) everything else. And he, and it was seasonal, right? Because he, because it was a year round thing. And so in the winter, he would have these dinners, which featured, you know, different kinds of meat because he was, he was raising animals, but then it was like root vegetables and pickled stuff. And then in the spring and summer, it was all this fresh food that, that, you know, was, was uh, ripe on the vine type of thing. And he wrote a book about it and that he was one of the early sort of food, farm to table people. Right. Anyway, this Portland food truck thing happened and it felt like our little brother had exceeded us. It was <laughs> like the, it was like we were Jimmy Vaughn and they were Stevie Ray Vaughn mm. to put this in Austin. I got it. Yes, I understand. And it just, it didn't sit right. <clears throat> it shouldn't be that Portland comes up with this thing so simple, so elegant. And the food truck thing, in my experience, really, there were like little food trucks around, but the whole food truck as a gourmet or as a, like a cultural, uh, marketplace mm-hmm. where you'd go into an, uh, abandoned lot and you could get food from around the world. I really do think that it, that came from Portland entirely and was exported to cities around the country. Cause everybody saw it and went, Whoa, you know, you have that in Austin now and you didn't used to, right? right. There used yeah. to be taco trucks, but not like Syrian cuisine, you know, sure. like trucks circled in a, I mean, there are places in Portland, there are 50 trucks. Yeah. In a lot. It's yeah. like going to a, it's like going to a Moroccan bazaar. Yeah. I've been there and I've, I've been to some of those. Yeah. And they're you know, great and they're great. And they yeah, got, you know, they got Christmas of stuff all right there. Open late. I mean, they're wonderful. So Seattle has, Seattle loosened its restrictions, I think due to public outcry. People Mm. were just like, this is ludicrous that we can't have this. Mm -hmm. And now there are food trucks, but nothing on the scale of Portland. There's no place that you would go. Certainly not anywhere that's centrally located where you roll up and there are 50 food trucks. You know, at, at night there's this truck over here is selling hot dogs and this one's got you know, and there are, there are great hamburger and taco and, uh, even oysters. I mean, you can get them, but we still are lagging way behind. And part of it is we don't have 
a lot of open space here. Uh, the the neighborhoods where people want to be are pretty crowded. Mm-hmm. There, there's no like in, partly the, the genius of Portland is that they neglected that city for 90 years. <laughs> <clears throat> they never tore anything down because they didn't have anything to build in its place, right? And so the city just sat there and moldered, but then time caught up with it. And suddenly Portland looked like it, like these genius preservationists. They hadn't torn down all their cool stuff. And so they slapped a coat of paint on it. You know, they pressure washed it and fixed the roof and they were like, ta-da. And it seemed, it seemed like, a, a, like it had been planned the whole time when it hadn't, they'd just been, they just didn't have the money to do anything about it. Seattle was constantly tearing stuff down because it wanted to be new and fancy. And now we look like idiots because we tore down everything. And Portland, you know, they had, sure, they had a, a, an entire city block that didn't have anything on it that they could fill with food trucks because nobody wanted to build anything there. And in Seattle, that vacant lot would have been five different buildings put mm-hmm. up, torn down, put up, torn down. Mm-hmm. Anyway. We would like to say thank you very much to the Flatiron School. Are you tired of your day job? Are you ready to launch a career in tech? The Flatiron School teaches people with little to no experience in tech the skills that they need to change their career in as little as four months. It's true. You can learn software engineering, data science, uh, usability, UX, UI design. I mean, you name it, they're teaching this. And they also have uh, WeWork campuses in New York, in London, and around the world. So you can learn this stuff online or at these campuses. It's, it's fantastic. You'll learn from expert instructors. You'll join WeWork's dynamic entrepreneurial community. And uh, you can change careers with confidence with their one-to-one career coaching and their tuition back guarantee. They have a proven job search framework. And you will receive a job in six months or you get your tuition back. Not even making this up. Join the thousands of students who've changed things by visiting flatironschool.com slash roadwork. Again, that's flatironschool.com slash roadwork. Learn how you can get your future started today. It's pretty cool. Go check it out. And thanks very much to Flatiron School. So you've got you've got food you've got food trucks now. Yeah, we do, but nothing like you guys. Nothing, no, nothing that would constitute like a like a full on food truck culture. They're they're here. People are able to like make a viable go at it. But I just there's a lot of people I can imagine who are listening to this and thinking what like what are these guys even talking about? What are they talking about a food truck? That sounds and I'll tell you when I got here to Austin. I had never, I had eaten at a food truck maybe one time when I had traveled out to LA and I, it was tacos or something like that, or maybe a burrito. And so when I, I came here, you know, I was talking to some people and I said, well, I, you know, I, I've, I've had Austin barbecue, but I haven't had a lot of it. I haven't had anything new, you know, and I really want to try something great. And this was what, nine years ago, eight, eight, nine years ago. And I, um, I wasn't sure where to go. I wasn't sure what to try, you know, and the recommendations that I was getting were like, everyone said, go to the salt lick. And so at the time, the salt lick, I think there were two locations for it. 
but it was, it's this, it's this barbecue place that was very famous at the time and still is. It's been around forever, but it started out as like a small little, you know, like a smoker pit that the guy would like invite his friends over to have. And then eventually he like turned it into a little restaurant and then it became a, I mean, it became a huge, huge thing. It's always busy. It's always crowded. People have weddings on the grounds. I mean, they've expanded and made it this huge thing. And I, I always enjoyed that. But then people started to say, listen, that's not like, that's good, but that's not the best barbecue. And that's not real barbecue. Mm. And so, um, you know, like, they weren't knocking it really, but they were saying there's, there's even better out there. Hmm. And I, you know, I, I was like, okay, well, you know, tell me where I'm supposed to go. And so at the time there were these new trucks that were coming out in addition to the existing taco trucks, which I had tried and I loved, there were now barbecue trucks were coming out and they, some of them had been around for a while but they were, this was like now being seen as like, this was the new barbecue mm-hmm. culture. This is like where you went to get. And so they would have their big, they would essentially have like two trailers. One would have the smoker in it. And then the other would be the sort of restaurant serving part where they would take everything that had been smoked, cut it up and, and sell it to you out of the window. And at first with all my issues, I was like, there, it's not, you know, the couple times I've had a taco from a truck, I was lucky to escape death because nothing that comes out of a truck could be good or clean Mm. or anything, but I was totally wrong. All the best food comes from a truck. And of course, I mean, you know, like Franklin barbecue, world famous uh, Franklin barbecue started out as a little trailer in, I'm going to say 2008, 2009, I think. And so really, um, you know, eight years ago, that nine years ago is when I was arriving here. So this kind of barbecue truck culture was a new thing. And eventually, I mean, you've heard of Franklin barbecue because Burdain talked about it on no reservations and like Barack Obama ate there when he came here, you know, and it was, you know, it's been in movies. Like it's, it's a, it's been voted, as like the best barbecue in the world. And, and mm. um, Aaron Franklin, the guy that opened it, got the James Beard Award for best chef in the Southwest. I mean, it's, it's great. And recently, like two, year, like two years ago, there was a fire there that like burnt it almost to the ground. But the restaurant area where you eat just had smoke damage, but like they lost everything else. So they had to rebuild and reopened again. But like that kind of started, Franklin kind of, this is the place you would go where there would be these lines. And I remember a friend of mine's like, you've got to go to Franklin. That's the best. Franklin's barbecue is the best. And they're like, just, it take, it's a long wait. And I said, what do you mean? And they're like, like bring a lawn chair. And I said, you know, I've never done this before. I'm going to take a day. And I got some friends together and we went out there and it was just like he said, like you, you we got there around like 930 in the morning and there was already a line of like 40, 50 people ahead of us. And at about 11 o'clock, they send someone out to go and start asking people like, what, what are you going to be getting? doesn't have to be exact, but like how much of brisket are you going to get? How many sausages are you going to get, et cetera? And they're kind of keeping a toll a tally because they run out. They only make so much every day. 
So what, what you come to find out is that like, if you show up in the line anytime, like after like 11, they might've already sold out before the, before the place even starts serving at, at 1130 or whenever it opens. So it, we waited for a few hours and I had it and it was amazing, but there are a lot of other places that opened up that are, I would say pretty much if they're not as good, they're right there. They're right on the edge of being there. If they're not there in, 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 in quality and flavor and, and taste. And so what really happened with all this attention that they got is that our barbecue went from being like a, like, oh yeah, it's pretty good. It's really good to all of a sudden, like now Austin, Texas was all about it and everybody knew about it and everybody wanted to come here for it. And there's tourists who come and do tours of these places and tastings and all that. And it's so cool. But it also means that like, as each place that comes out, gets more popular and better known, like you almost can't go there anymore because all the tourists kind of descend on it and it becomes like you have to get there at 11 in order to get in line. And then you still are waiting half an hour, 45 minutes to get it. And so there's a few places that I, I like to go to that some of which have been here for, you know, almost 10 years that, um, that are lesser known, but are just as good. Curlin's is one of those. Um, and, uh, and, but it's great. And our culture, we have this whole culture around it. It's way taken over the tacos. Like people still think of tacos in Austin and we still have lots of tacos, but I think it's all, uh, barbecue trucks now. Well, in the, in the South by Southwest days, Mm -hmm. for me, when I went to Austin, it was we were always chasing barbecue, chasing barbecue. You got to get the barbecue. You got to go out here. You would drive out into the middle of the mesquite, right. uh, two hours out to some to some guy who's who's uh, got a fire going in a barrel, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, chasing barbecue, chasing barbecue. Right. And um, easier and to do now. Way easier to do now. <clears throat> it was like two thousand six or seven, maybe no, maybe a little earlier than that. Maybe two thousand. Uh, my Austin friends were like, look, every time you come here, we're on this crazy barbecue search, but the real secret is Al Pastor tacos. And, and it, um, it revolutionized my South by Southwest because I no longer felt this mad drive to go find brisket somewhere. Yeah. You could get little, you could get tacos anywhere and they were awesome. They were just as good, if not better as a way of feeding yourself. Mm-hmm. And so then I went through a, you know, through another long period, um, a long Austin period of just getting tacos. Mm-hmm. Now you're saying it's flipped back around and there's brisket everywhere. You don't have to go out to, to, uh, Fredericksburg or oh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't have to do that anymore, especially, I mean, like for people who are going to South by, um, you just cross, you can walk to it really, but you just cross 35 and that's where. All of the, that's what we now call the East side, which is where all the barbecue trucks are <laughs> in their little wagon circles with benches in the middle. You can sit and eat at and, and I mean, you could so also hilarious. head down South Congress, which you'd need a vehicle yeah. to do, but, um, you never used to go, you never used to go to the quote unquote East side. No, you didn't go over there. No, you that was you, dangerous. You were welcome over there. Definitely not. And it's, it's changed a lot. And I, I mean, there's, there's, there are people with, um, double six figure incomes, you know, who are, who are moving to the area and 
building their custom homes in the east side now. It's a very wow. different, very different part of town than it, it was. It's it, there's still there's still parts you don't want to go, but overall it's much much improved. And uh, and yeah, but the food that these trucks make, and also I mean it's 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 time for me to also be clear about what barbecue is. Barbecue is not uh, burgers and hot dogs oh, uh, and, and, and on, a, on, a, on a grill. When I grew up in Philadelphia, we would say uh, that the friends would say, come on over, bring the family. We're having a barbecue on Saturday. Be there at, at 11 a.m. And then, you know, we'll eat, we'll eat at 12. And you'd show up and there'd be hot dogs and burgers and buns. And maybe if you're lucky, there'd be some... Uh, you know, some like homemade, um, yeah, coleslaw maybe, or, or stuff, you know, and maybe some baked beans would be there, maybe corn on the cob, I'm sure. And, and that was a barbecue, but that has nothing to do with barbecue. That's grilling. Or if you really want to uh, use a better term, that's a cookout. We're having a cookout. That means we're outside and we're cooking and there's a grill. Could be charcoal, could be gas putting meat on a grill, you're cooking it. That, that's a cookout or a grill, grilling. It's not barbecue. Barbecue is slow smoking of meats. And I'm not going to get into how and why Central Texas barbecue is a thousand times better than any of these other states that attempt it. That's a whole different show. But uh, it's slow, low heat slow cooking, lots of smoke. I mean, you're not getting anything out of a smoker for less than what? Six hours. If it takes less than six hours, it's not barbecue. Mm, Maybe uh. maybe you could say four hours if you really want to cut some corners. Okay. All right. You twist my arm about it. I'll go along with that. But Mm. if, if you're, if you're putting a burger on a grill and, and flipping it and cu- that's not barb. Stop it. Don't hey, Listen, don't put a burger on the grill. This, I'm not a chef, but don't Stop put it. it on there and leave it for six hours. No, you don't no, want no, that. No, that's not how, that's not how you do a that burger. That is not barbecue. And so no. when people say, we had a great barbecue over 4th of July. I'm like, oh really? Did you have uh, did you have ribs? Did you have any brisket? And they're like, no, it was hot dogs and bur-. You didn't have a barbecue. You had a, you had a, a cookout. A cookout. cookout. Yes, right. Ugh, I'm so glad we got this straight. I just out. wanted to, I have to go on record every period. Like once a year, I have to talk about this and it's yeah. the summertime. So now is the time I had a smoker before I um, burnt it to the ground. Uh-huh. I had my own smoker and, uh, and, and, and did some of the uh, slow smoking of meats in there. Yeah. And this is, I remember I, this. I remember this phase when I was doing it. I learned why these places are closed on Mondays and Tuesdays because in order to get that, that food ready, those meats ready for people who are showing up to eat at 11, you know, a brisket or a pork shoulder, that's like, that takes upwards of 12, sometimes 16 hours Oof. to smoke. Yeah. So if you count backwards from 11 AM, these people are working and they have like overnight crew there. It is right. a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work. There's a, a guy, I haven't met him in person, but he lives here in Austin and he does a lot of writing for, um, for the, the local magazines. He's like the resident barbecue expert as, as far as I'm concerned. And um, he is, 
uh, there he is. His name is Jimmy Ho, H-O. Yeah. And um, he is obsessed with barbecue. He's awesome. And uh, I follow him on Instagram. He's got f- probably 50,000 followers on Instagram. Uh, and he goes to all of the Texas places and eats at all the, the, the best places. And I'm always learning, you know, new stuff from, from him and learning about it from him. But he is one of the people I think that's really helping the world learn about this amazing barbecue. But recently he did his own smoking of meats and he said the same thing. He's like, after doing this for one day, he's like, we got to give a lot more credit to these guys that are running these pits like five days a week, you know, and, and of course they close on Monday and Tuesday because weekends are big business. So they've got to, they've got to close down at some point to just recover from this work. Now there's a place like Leroy and Lewis who is doing, uh, they have their own sort of modern take on barbecue and they do things like instead, of the, first of all, all their meat comes from like, you were talking about the, the guy the, with the made up name that does um, farm to table stuff. Yeah. Um, the, 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 they're like a farm to table kind of a barbecue place. Like they only go with like really like nice meat, like pastured and like grass fed and free range and all that stuff. But instead of doing a brisket, they do beef cheeks, which mm. you first hear that and you're like, I don't know if I want to try that unless you're like into, into all eating all kinds of foods like us. And then you're like, of course I want to try that. It has all of the richness of brisket with a little bit of an extra flavor. That's just so amazing, but it's, they're small. They're very small. So instead of spending 16 hours I bet you could smoke those in, in five or six hours. And I'm like, that's why they do it. But it's really, really good. You've got to go to Leroy and Lewis when you come next. Yeah, well, <clears throat> if only I'd ever been invited to come to Austin. You know, um, let me invite you for the first time, Thursday, July wow. 11th, 2019 at 1.42 p.m. Central Time. So into it. I'll come down. I'll give it a, I'll give it a look-see. Yeah. We would like to thank Squarespace for sponsoring this episode because you can do anything with Squarespace. You can showcase your work. You can promote or sell a physical item or build an online business. You can blog, you can publish content. You can, if you're a band and you need a band site, you can do that site on Squarespace. Everything that you want to do on Squarespace is just beautiful. And their sites are beautiful too. That's the thing is you see these websites and you're like, I could never design something like that myself. I don't even want to know how a site like that gets designed and I sure don't want to pay thousands of dollars for it. You don't have to. You can just use Squarespace. It's amazing what you can do there. And as I mentioned, they've got built-in e-commerce so you can sell anything online. You can customize the look and feel. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your, uh, your friend, your significant other, whoever it is, and both of you, I want you to, to listen to the spot and then immediately go do this. Stop the show, pause the show, and then go do this. The two of you, you can sign up for a demo account. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to pay anything until you're ready to launch. Go and you create an account and your other person create an account. And both of you start out picking the same template. Spend 15 minutes sliding little sliders, messing around, customizing it. Even starting with the same template, and they've got dozens of them, but even starting with the same one, your site and your friend's site will look nothing like each other. That's how customizable Squarespace is. And you can change this anytime you want. If you have a website and you want to completely redesign it, you can 
pick a new template, try it out, test it out, see all your content in it. If you like it, one button, boom, your whole entire site has been redesigned. It's amazing. And there's so much more that they do. You can register a domain name there. You can do anything you want there. This is the thing. You have a dream, but you want to make it a reality. You can do it with a website from Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash roadwork. Squarespace.com slash roadwork. You'll get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, that's the only time that you have to pay anything. When you're ready to take the thing live, use the offer code roadwork, one word, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. So thanks again to Squarespace for making this program possible. All of this is, um, <clears throat> it's reminding me uh, how amazing the modern uh, age is because I don't want to prepare my food for... I don't want to prepare my food ever again, ever. Yeah, so I certainly don't want to, um, certainly don't want to prepare it for like six to eight hours, but I don't even want to spend five minutes doing it. No, it's and, too long. Um, and it's what's so great about living in a city um, it's a, it maybe is, maybe it's an unjustifiable, um, squandering of resources somehow, but I feel like it's a ni- actually a pretty nice division of labor that there are some people that want to make food for others. And mm-hmm. there are people like me who want to pay you to make food for me so that I don't have to, because when I make food for myself, it's not good. And I'm willing to pay the money. I don't want to raise a chicken in order to have a farm fresh egg. I don't want the responsibility. I don't want a dog. I don't want you to have a dog either, but I, but I definitely don't want a dog. I don't, uh, I mean, I guess I don't care if you have a dog as long as you keep it always keep it, inside yeah, and keep quiet. It quiet. Yeah. Or if you live on like 200 acres and I don't live anywhere near you, but otherwise, no, no, don't. It's not just keep it inside, I guess. Yeah. Don't even really take it for walks. Keep it inside. And, right. And it's not dogs that, uh, let that it poop I dislike. In the tub. It's not dogs I dislike. It's, um, it's dog owners who don't, yes. don't take <clears throat> correct, proper care of their animal and engage yeah, I've them. Heard in, that. I've heard that dog owner yeah. thing. That's, that's so true. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I had a really good day yesterday. Yeah. What happened? Well, it was in the form of what we're talking about. It was, um, you know, I'm a little jet lagged. I, I, I went on a long trip overseas and I'm kind of just sort of still shaking it off. Cause it was when I was younger, the, um, you get bad jet lag when you, when you fly East, but then when you fly West, I always, my, my experience in the past was like, yeah, you just stay up until bedtime, you go to sleep and then you're like, you wake up and you're back. You're, you're, you're rolling tough. But this time it took me a little bit of time. I'm still kind of trying to figure out what time of day it is. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> the night before last, I spent the night at my, my house, which now has, has sold and closed and the, uh, the new owners are leasing it back to me right for a month or so. But there's nothing really there. I don't, I don't, there's no food really to eat. There's no, I can't really make coffee. I don't even remember how, um, (laughs) my stuff is sort of just not there anymore. I'm just wandering around the house like a ghost. So I spent the night there and I woke up at like seven 30 in the morning cause, cause I'd gone to bed at, at midnight and, um, gotten a full night's sleep Mm -hmm. because I was, cause I was still on Estonian time. 
Mm. I'm walking around the house. I don't have any, there's no food. There's no coffee. And I realized, ah, I got to get in the car and go somewhere. You know, I'm, I just need to like get out, start the day. So I got out in the car and started to drive to this neighborhood called uh, Georgetown, which is the Seattle neighborhood that most closely approximates a kind of Portland food truck atmosphere. There is a little um, quarter acre parking lot that has food trucks and, and they have uh, it's like a, it's a neighborhood where you can still be a sculptor Mm -hmm. and live in a space and do your work. There are a lot of um, punk rockers still down there. It's where Fantagraphics books has a store. Um, It's like a, I mean, it's surrounded by railroad tracks and freeways, and so it doesn't, it's not exactly super duper charming. It's just a little, it's a little charming. Um, and uh, and in Seattle, it, it, it ends up kind of sufficing for being maybe one of the more charming places. But but this, the, the space itself is kind of, it's pretty, it's pretty hobbled. Right. Um, and it used to be, you know, there's nobody ever there and I get in the car and I'm driving down there cause there's a coffee shop there. That's good. And I figured I'd get a coffee and there was a traffic jam headed into Georgetown because now apparently that's a commuter route at that hour of the day. Mm. And, you know, cars and buses backed up all the way halfway up Boeing field. Just one, one more of those throw up your hands kind of like, well, I guess this, you know, I guess that wasn't true five years ago. It wasn't true three years ago. Uh, and now it's traffic jam, but I waited my turn and I, I went into this coffee shop and I got a coffee and I looked around and this was a kind of coffee shop where I, where there's a you know fifty to sixty percent chance that walking in there I'll see somebody that I know, uh, but I looked around and there were a bunch of people that looked like people I would know, but I didn't know any of them. Yeah, I got a coffee. And it was a little rainy, um, but I decided to go sit at one of the out outside tables, and there was nobody else sitting out there. I sat at the table, and I drank my coffee, and I watched the delivery trucks come and go, and the people. Uh, pull up and run in and, and then hop in their car and run off and watch the traffic jam kind of move through the town. Had a, just a fine little coffee sitting by myself. And then I, it was about nine and I said, well, I guess I go do something else, you know? And, and this is how I, this is how I've lived most of my life as an adult. Like, well, I guess I got to get some coffee. And once I got some coffee, I, I would say, well, I guess I've got to go do something else. And in the last year or two, I've given myself this job of, of podcasting every mm-hmm. morning. Right. You know, I talk to Merlin on Mondays. I do Friendly Fire on Tuesdays. I do Omnibus on Wednesdays and Road Work on Thursdays. So I have somewhere to be every morning now. But I never did. I never used to. And um, I didn't have anything to do yesterday. So I get up and I'm, I'm kind of walk, walk around the corner. And as I'm walking around uh, the corner of this coffee shop, I look inside and 
I do see someone I know. Mm. Uh, it's, and she sees me through the glass and she waves and it's, um, it's a wave that's like, this is, this is a, a, a woman that I, uh, when I look at, I recognize her, I know her, but I'm not sure how I know her. <laughs> I'm not sure. Did you sure remember her how, name? No, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how well I know her. It's, um, you know, it's a kind of hazard of, of my, of my lifestyle that I know a lot of people and I know people, I often know people well in their estimation. I know them well, or we know one another well, but I can't quite place how I know them or who they are exactly because I know a lot of people well, and it's not a fake well, right? It's not that they think we know one another well and I, and they're wrong. Right. We, we do know one another. Well, I know, I know a lot about them and, and I, you know, and we've had many times together, but it takes me a minute to kind of sort through all the faces and all the people to remember, because I'm capable of knowing a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm capable of knowing a lot of people. Well, because I like to, I like to go there with people, but, but you know, people also, you, you, I mean, I, it, there, it's a sorting problem. I don't have a photographic memory. I don't have a great memory for names, but I see her and I know her and she waves and it's a wave. It's not, it's a wave that is. Um, that if I had, if I'd had somewhere to go, I could have just like waved at her like, Hey, and just kept moving. But I know her well enough and I've, and I haven't seen her in long enough that that would have felt a little bit rude. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is a person I, I should, I should stop moving. I should go. I should just duck my head in the door and say, Hey, how's it going? Give her a hug. Mm-hmm. Then I can move on. Uh, and so I double back and, uh, I come in, Hey, give her a hug. And there's, I don't think anybody has any expectation that I would greet her by name. And it's a, and we have a, we have a little moment. What have you been doing? Are you, and at this time I can imagine you're kind of looking for clues as Looking to how you know her and, and all that. That's right. But, but I, I no longer feel any stress about it. You right. know, there were many years where in a situation like that, I felt like there was something wrong with me because I didn't remember her name and I, I should, and I would be like sitting there in a place of stress, like, fuck, fuck, fuck. What's her name? What's her name? You know, <laughs> trying to, trying to figure out her name or figure out where we know each other. Um, and as the years have gone by, I've realized, uh, this is just, this is who I am and this is very normal. And, um, there are a lot of people who would say in that situation, what's your name again? Uh, and I don't do that. I just, I just let it ride. I just talk to her like a, like I, I talk to her as though I know her, which I do. And 
I'm not somebody who says your name four or five times over in the course of a conversation. I just wait. If her name arrives in the course of the day, then it will, and I will. I'll try and mark it down. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of it, it it's sort of like speaking a foreign language. For years, when I traveled overseas, I felt bad. I felt like I was failing um, encounters in some way because I didn't speak their language. And so I would struggle and, you know, uh, dribble out this, um, you know, what, what bad sort of vocabulary I had in their language. And I would apologize and I would say things, you know, I would start every conversation with like, excusez-moi, parlez-vous anglais? Uh, je ne comprends pas. All this stuff. Because I, because I, uh, because I perceived that I, um, that I was in the wrong. And over time I realized I speak English. It's <laughs> the only language I speak. It, it, I'm extremely lucky. And we all are that English has become a de facto lingua franca in big parts of the world, right? If, if, I mean, I noticed it when I was in the Baltics, if you're from Estonia and you go to visit the neighboring country of Latvia, you speak to them in English because Latvians and Estonians don't understand one another. And rather than learn the language of the country next door, they just use English. So we're lucky as English speakers that, um, that we can just use English in, in a lot of cases, but even in cases where no one there speaks English, uh, and I'm visiting their country. And so the presumption would be like, well, I don't speak English and you're in Estonia, so you don't speak Estonian. So uh, it's not my problem that I'm speaking it now as an Estonian. Right. Uh, that still isn't, that still isn't my problem either. Right. I mean, I'm not, I, I certainly don't stand there and go like, how dare you not speak English? But the fact that I only speak English isn't, that's not a problem. It's just a fact. And so if I want a sandwich and they don't speak English, I do what you do, which is point at the thing you want or whatever, you know, you make yourself understood. I don't waste everybody's time and emotional energy by standing there with my hat in my hands going, I'm so sorry that I don't speak Estonian because they don't care. I don't care. You know, like it's a kind of, it's just a recognition that things are what they are. And this is true of remembering people's names or of being in a situation where it's like, Hey, we know each other. I don't remember how, and that's not really salient because we're not talking about our I mean, as soon as you start talking about our common past, I'll remember, but really you're just a person I'm meeting in a cafe and, and what's our, what's our exchange going to be? Let's find out. So we stand there and she's a woman my age and she, and here are the clues, right? She's very rock and roll. She's got long black hair, bangs in her eyes, tattoos, rings on her fingers. She's wearing, you know, um, tight black jeans and a black t-shirt with the name of a music festival on it, like a music festival that's now defunct. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, a music festival that was cool 15 years ago and then was uncool for a while and now is gone. Uh, and a denim jacket over it, 
that she doesn't have any buttons on the jacket, so that I can't really zoom in on what those what you know. I, no clues there. But um, but you know she she's like extremely cool, and so that narrows it down, right? I don't know her from the Seattle City Council. <laughs> uh, I probably didn't. I don't know her from Gonzaga. Right. I, uh, she's like a member of my music community. So I say, Hey, how's it going? What are you doing? She goes, Oh, I'm just sitting here. You know, I've got, I'm, I'm doing some work today. And I, and I, and so I pull up a chair. We're sitting at a little table kind of right inside the door of this busy cafe. And I've been sitting in this cafe already for an hour, but on the other side of it, you know, like around the corner, I was sitting at my little table. And we start to chat and I think there's a, she has a little bit of surprise that I pulled up a chair and it's not, she's, she, it's not surprise. Like she's, she's not, uh, it's not unwelcome. She's not saying like, you, you know, I didn't register any feeling like, um, well, I'd better get back to work. It was much more surprised. Like, Oh, Oh, you're, you know, kind of feeling like, uh, that she wouldn't expect I would have the, have the time or interest to actually continue the conversation beyond just like, how's it going? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I'm kind of curious, like, how do I know this person? And I don't have anything to do today. So I sat down and we start talking and she is the president of the business uh, or she's the director of the business community for this small neighborhood. She's like, got a job here promoting local small businesses. And, uh, and we do know each other from rock music, but on uh, unclear how, you know, she's, um, she, I don't think that she's, uh, she's coming at it from being a fan of the long winters, for instance, you know, she's not, uh, She's somebody that I know through the, through the town. Well, we sit and we talk about the local business community. We talk about, uh, what's been going on in the world. And we spend a little bit of time talking about Chris Cornell and how that's still affecting us. And it's clear that she is very tied into the Soundgarden people. And to the mud honey people, it just kind of comes up in conversation such that it's now clear to me that she is an old Seattleite, somebody mm -hmm. who's been here the whole time. So it's like, right, right, right. And, and I'm, I'm putting together, like, I feel, I feel like I know her through Danny Bland, for instance, or, you know, there are a handful of people that, that now I'm, I'm realizing like, this is how we met. We must've met in this circumstance or, or. Or in this orbit, there are only so many people that I share these, um, these connections with her or the, uh, this many people that I, sh that I share with her, mm -hmm. these connections, I guess is how I would have phrased it. And so since she's in the business community, well, little by little, somebody comes over and talks to her and, and pretty soon a guy comes over and she introduces me and he's a guy, maybe 65, but now when, but like, when he came over, did he say, Hey, uh, Jessica, how are you? And you heard the name and then finally you knew the name or nope. Nope. No? Okay. 
Uh, I knew his name though, John Bennett. And, and, and she described him to me as the guy who came into this neighborhood a couple 20 years ago and bought a lot of these buildings. So he's, you know, he's a, he's a fit and handsome guy in his sixties who bought a lot of buildings in this neighborhood when it was still a rundown neighborhood. And now he's, he's here. He's not a absentee millionaire landlord. He's, he's in the neighborhood. He owns a lot of these little bars and restaurants. He's trying to keep the neighborhood cool. Like he's one of the good guys, but he's a millionaire landlord. And he sits and talks to her a little bit about some stuff that's going on in the local business community. And I ask him some questions about a couple of buildings or, or vacant lots in the neighborhood that I've been curious about for a long time. And he has the answers to those things. So now I'm starting, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm learning a lot. I've learned, I've finally met this guy, John Bennett, that I, that I was vaguely aware of <laughs> developed an impression of him. He answered some questions where now I know that the guy that owns the Ford flatbed trucks down at the corner is named Cosmo and he's 92 years old. And the reason that he doesn't, the reason that that lot remains a junkyard is that Cosmo bought it in 1961 for $4,000 and he doesn't give a shit about Seattle's property or, you know, he, he, it's just a junk pile to him. He doesn't care, even though the lot is probably worth $4 million now. Mm, wow. And I'm like, right. Okay. Cosmo. Maybe the next time I run into that 92 year old guy, I'm going to say, Hey Cosmo. Like it's just a little bit of, because Cosmo is an easy name to remember. So I sit with her for a while and then the guy from Fantagraphics books walks in. Well, he and I have had a kind of tumultuous back and forth mm. because he didn't like my punk rock is bullshit article when it came out. Okay. And, uh, and then when I ran for city council, he came out kind of vociferously, not only in favor of another candidate, but kind of against my candidacy. And he was, he was riding for a candidate that had, that had no chance. Whereas I had a slim chance, but he saw me as the, as his guy's competitor. And so he wrote a, couple of things that suggested that because I thought punk rock was bullshit, that I would be a bad city council person missing the entire point of, I don't think punk rock is bullshit. That was supposed to be a funny article, <laughs> but so he sits down Well, he and I have known each other for a long time, but never, never really friendly, but it turns out he's the, he is the executive director of the Georgetown business association. So now we're having a business meeting about Georgetown, a neighborhood that I don't, you know, I didn't know that much about it. I mean, like I'm just, I'm a guy that goes there, but now I'm sitting and I'm learning about, oh, wow, the city bought the old Korean church that has this amazing theater in it that I rehearsed in a couple of times 10 years ago for the Seattle Rock Orchestra that I always imagined the McMiniman brothers would buy and turn into a destination theater, hotel, restaurant, mm -hmm. but the city of Seattle bought it from the Beecher's cheese company in order to turn it into a sobering up facility for, uh, chronic drunks on the street. So, you know, if, when the city, the city has a van that drives around and picks up public inebriates, not just transients, but you know, if you're like a, if you're a guy in a business suit, who's 
falling down drunk and there's nobody there to take you home and you're just lying on the street, they'll pick you up and they'll take you to one of these facilities where there are a bunch of beds and they just tuck you in and you sleep it off. And then in the morning, well, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a good question what they do with you in the morning. But the city bought this old building and they're in the process of converting it into one of these, uh, these facilities because they used to have one in South Lake Union, but they closed it down because the property there became so valuable that the city was able to sell their drunk house for $6 million to Amazon. And now they've got all this money. This program, I guess, managed to keep that money internally. And they bought this building in Georgetown. Well, I had driven by it earlier that day and noticed that it was that there was a, a lot of work being done on the building. And I briefly thought, oh, finally, the McMiniman brothers are turning it into a theater. Now I'm sitting at this little table. I realize, oh, no, it's being turned into a, I mean, not <laughs> oh, no, but like, <laughs> oh, golly, it's being turned into a, like this facility. And the guy from Fantagraphics, who is the chairman of the business association, is also a dyed-in-the-wool leftist, progressive, uh, organized labor boosting, old school West Coast liberal. And so he is really trying to walk a pretty tight line, which is he's not against this, even though a lot of people in his community are, because he recognizes it has to get done. He's agnostic about it. He just wants to make sure that it doesn't cause a problem for his business neighborhood. And so he's got to, he's got to be pretty careful here. And what he's trying to, what he's trying to get is assurances from the city that when these people wake up in the morning, that the city's not just going to push them out the front door right into Georgetown's burgeoning restaurant, cafe and bar neighborhood. Right. You don't want like you don't want to bring the drunks from all over Seattle and just put them here and then push them out the door. They've got to have <laughs> right. there's got to be a van to take them back to where they were they were picked up, right? Or somewhere. Take them somewhere. So we talk about that for a while. And pretty soon it's one o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm sitting in this cafe. We got up and had another coffee. At one point, she apologized that she needed to go smoke a cigarette. So we went out. She and I went outside, and and uh, she smoked a cigarette. We talked a little bit about she has a, a grown daughter. Um, she and then then it was revealed that her fiftieth birthday is this year, and mm. you know, so she and I are exactly the same age. We talked about a lot of things. And by four o'clock in the afternoon, I realized that I had, I had wild away the entire day sitting in this cafe, talking to a woman that, you know, I gradually, I learned her name. I, How? and I, by saying, um, she referenced my Instagram account or uh, she's putting on an art show. And uh, she showed me some of her art and she invited me to the art show. And I said, why don't you, 
I handed her my phone and said, why don't you put your Instagram yeah, account? I knew, I knew I was going to mention earlier yeah. that this was a technique that I, I suspected you would use, which is could, could you add yourself to my contacts or, Hey, could you, I want to follow you on Instagram, but it's easier if you type it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's, just, it's the perfect thing, right? You just go here, just put your thing into my Instagram. So, so I followed her on Instagram and then I started to put together, you know, I kind of, um, like I slyly s- scrolled through her pictures, you know, not like under the table, she's watching, but I'm just kind of, I'm looking at her pictures, but I'm also looking for pictures of her with other people that sure. I know. Right. Um, but over the course of the day, now she and I have spent this day together, which is more time than we'd ever more time than all the other times we'd spent together combined mm-hmm. right there. Um, we knew each other in the context of seeing each other at shows or at public events. And we'd met enough times that we were at the level of like a hug in greeting. Mm-hmm. But, but every conversation we'd had all together up until that point had, you know, they were all just like, what's up? How's it going? Wow. Yeah. Good show. Oh my God. Great to see you. But now we knew about each other, you know, now we'd spent a whole day together and, uh, and she had taught me a lot, like just being with her for a day. I learned, I learned so much about just, uh, just a ton of things, uh, not just the people that she introduced me to, but the, um, the neighborhood we were in, but also we talked about old Seattle and, and the rock culture that she just had a, she just had a lot of knowledge about. And it was, it was all just fill, you know, fill in stuff for me. Like, Oh, you know, that person, how how are they related to this person? Oh, interesting. I never put that together. You know, just like the little, little tiny little stuff. Well, by the afternoon, you know, I'd had what I considered to be a great day. And I realized that that was how I, that was what my days used to be. Mm. I prior, prior this, to your podcasting job. Yeah. Right. But, but you know, this was all through my twenties and thirties. This is the, this is exactly what not having a plan looks like. And it's, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because, because I've recognized that not that I don't have a plan that I never had a plan and that, not having a plan has is maybe one of the most um, shaping principles of of my existence. Like my whole life arc is governed and defined by waking up in the morning and walking out the door with no, not even no clear picture, but like absolutely zero agenda. Mm-hmm and walking into the world. And, and, um, and here I had spent a day in a style that I hadn't in a long time. I mean, obviously I just spent a couple of weeks in Europe with very little plan, but I had, but I had my daughter there. I had a, you know, I was traveling with my family. It wasn't, um, it wasn't this kind of thing where I just get to sit forever. Cause if my little girl had been with me at a certain point, she would have said, I'm bored. <laughs> and you know, and the third or fourth time she said it, I would have felt obligated to like, you know, take her somewhere. 
but I, I never got bored. And, um, and my friend at the table didn't get bored because we were having, a, she was there doing her job, but we were having a very convivial time and it was kind of, and her, I was make it was easier for her to do her work in a way having me there and kind of, you know, it's, it's, um, it makes your job kind of fun, at least for a day. If you sit and, and conduct it with a person that doesn't know anything about it, who's interested. So she got to introduce me to all these people that she saw on a daily basis. And, and it, and it was a, and each one of those people then got to be featured in what normally would have been a mundane exchange. You know, they would have come in and said, oh, here, I need you to do this. And, and I was hoping that you could tell me about this. And, in, and, in, and me being there meant that they, they walked in and said, hey, I need you to do this. And she said, oh, let me introduce you to John. This is so-and-so. They do this. They do that. And then, they, you know, they have a little light shined on them for a minute. But, but the, the, the feeling that, that I had was that this not, that this not having a plan, which often when I look at it from a distance, I feel like what not having a plan has done is that, you know, I never, I haven't really accomplished many of the, um, sort of totemic accomplishments that I expected I would. I, I didn't pursue something to perfection. I never, um, you know, I'm not, I haven't made a ton of money. I haven't made a ton of art. I haven't. Mm -hmm. And so, so I look at this planlessness often very critically because I see only, or, or rather it's easy to see only the things that I didn't accomplish because I didn't pursue a plan to accomplish them. But in spending this day like this, I realized that this planlessness is, is a thing that has, that's given my life a great, um, there's a, there, there is a, there's a warm light that has shined on me, uh, throughout my life. And that this, uh, this planlessness is, is, um, integral to it. I couldn't have spent a day like this. And I couldn't have gotten what I got out of it if I had had a single, uh, if, if, if I'd had any feeling in me that this was a waste of time, that I was just, that this was, um, that I needed to be doing something, you know, that, cause that's the voice that's in people, right? Mm -hmm. The, like, well, I've been sitting here long enough. I should go do something or right. I've got, I've got this long list of things to do. And I've just, you know, I can't just sit here and waste time. I got to get, I got to get going. And, um, and I don't have that feeling. I'm sure I've got a long list of things to do. I should, I should finish my book and, uh, and make a new, new long winner's record. But, but, um, but that, whatever that is, that willingness, I guess, to spend six hours in the company of someone uh, she, you know, she, I'm not trying to get anything out of her. She's not trying to get it. We're not doing any business. You know, this is just, we're whiling away the time. Right. So it was a, it was a really good day and a, and a day that I could only describe as good sort of, um, 
here, right? I mean, I, I then I come then I come to this environment. You're in my conversation to this podcasting world that I inhabit now, where I know people are are um, listening in, and I'm trying to make sense of of yesterday in a way that up until now, I mean, one of the things about that planlessness is that then I would have to process it. I'd be processing it today. I'd be thinking about yesterday. I'd be integrating it into my experience, but I'd be doing that alone. You know, I'd be doing that in isolation. There was very, there are very few times when I would sit down with somebody else and say, I had a really great day yesterday. I mean, I guess I would do that, but it would be in the context of then sitting with another person having a similar kind of long day. Mm-hmm. But now I can, you know, I can kind of, I can kind of process it out loud live and, yeah, and it's all, it's all part of like, Dan, I've, I've sold my house and the, and the money is in the bank and I don't have a place to live. Mm-hmm. I still have this house, but within a few weeks, it's going to go, it's going to go away. And I'm going to be in a state of like utter, like, uh, like maybe unique in my life, uh, a state of like complete slow-mo, everything is in the air kind of, um, kind of like movie moment. The, the, the general Lee is jumping the stream and it, <laughs> and it pauses for commercial. <laughs> and I don't, I have no, <clears throat> I have awesome. no, no plan. <laughs> I don't have any plan. Like the, the, we come back from commercial and the assumption is that general Lee is going to land the jump. Right. And I'm pretty sure that I'm going to land the jump, but, but I don't know how I arrived here. I don't know how I'm going to land the jump. I, I, I wrote a letter. I sat down with a pen and a piece of paper and I, and I started to write a letter to the, to the guy that owns the house that I, that I feel is the kind of uh, benchmark house in this neighborhood that I want, that I want to buy. Right. The house is not for sale, but I wrote a letter to this guy and I sat down with my, with a pen and a piece of paper and I started to write a letter and I, and I got a, you know, I got a couple of sentences in and my handwriting started to go into that like shorthand. Yes. Scribble. Yes. And I realized, Oh, I've now I've, uh, now two sentences in, I look like a crazy person. You can't read this. And so I crumpled it up and I right. started again, you know, dear sir, my name is John Roderick and I am interested in blah, 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 blah. And it happened again. And I crumpled it up and I realized I haven't written a three paragraph letter in longhand in years. And, and my hand has forgotten how to do it. It took me seven tries to write a few simple sentences in a legible handwriting because I would get, 
I would get going and even trying, even sitting there going like, no, make mm. every letter, <laughs> uh-huh. dot your eyes. Like, yeah. Even that, I would get halfway through a word and my hand would just go, and off to the races, like, do-do-do-do-do. It took me seven tries to write this very simple letter. Mm. And and that was that was astonishing to me. I feel like I should every day sit with my sit with my hand and write, write in a write in a notebook, just to just to not lose it. To I, you know, I don't want to just be chicken scratch. I never had good handwriting. But I wrote this letter and I put it in an envelope and I walked over to this house and I slipped it under the door, and it was just like, hey. If you want to sell this house, I want to buy it. Mm-hmm. Give me a call. Here's my number or email me at this address. So that so there's this sort of pregnant there's this pregnancy in the air. I could get a phone call today. Yeah. Um or I could I could never hear from the person. Right. Anyway, Dan, this is a this is a crazy this is this is a crazy moment. In my life, all the stuff we've been talking about for so long. Yeah. It's all. Yeah, here it is. General Lee is in the air. 